Uh, we're in Hebrews. This is a book of the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. been some educated guesses, but we're not sure. But it is part of God's Word to us, part of the canon. Uh, and we're about halfway through. This has 13 chapters, so we're about halfway through. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. The Habig women are not in town this morning. Uh, the females in my life are at Universal Studios just Harry Pottering out right now. And um, so I'm required to use a Harry Potter example at the beginning of this sermon. I don't think I've used him since Easter, so it's time to re-up on Harry Potter. But uh, if you've read the books, and if you haven't, you know, there is still time to be saved. But, but in the first one, you know, really at the very beginning of the first book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, you see this back and forth between... Uh, Professor Dumbledore, who's the headmaster of the wizardry school, Hogwarts, and one of the uh, infamous professors, Professor McGonagall. And she's referring to this person that she calls you-know-who, and there's this discussion with Dumbledore about should we call him you-know-who or should we call him by his name? I'm not comfortable calling his by his, his name and Dumbledore says, well, I wish people would call him by his name. His name is Voldemort. You know, the first time you read this, you're thinking, I hope J.K. Rowling is going to explain what this is about because I, I don't know what this is about. And really, in some ways, the rest of the, the series is about that. Uh, we're, we're about halfway through Hebrews, and already three times the writer of Hebrews has referred to this person named Melchizedek. And just kind of like in passing already three times has said, yeah, Jesus, who's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek and on to the next thing. And I have to think the first readers of this sort of looked at each other and said, is he going to explain what that means? Because I have no idea what he's talking about. And the deal is that the, the writer is actually, he's referring to two things. There's this figure that we really only encounter to any descriptive degree in Genesis. And there's not much description at all. He's a man that Abraham met after this sort of odd military excursion uh, where he rescued his nephew, Lot. This is in Genesis chapter 14. And he succeeds, and he's met by the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom wants to give him these gifts, but there's this other king of Salem, which goes on to become Jerusalem. But this is before it's Jerusalem. And he meets Abraham with gifts of bread and wine and receives tithes from him. And he's a king and he's a priest. He's called the priest of God Most High. And so there's this psalm by David, Psalm 110, that, that refers back to that name. And it's a really mysterious psalm. Now I'm, I'm going to get to the passage here in a second. But uh, people listening on the podcast are at a little bit of a disadvantage because they didn't just hear the beginning of this psalm, where David says, the Lord, it's in all caps, that means Yahweh, that's God's name. God said to my Lord, meaning somebody who's David's Lord. Now David's the king, and he's saying, someone who's my Lord was addressed by Yahweh. And Yahweh said to him, sit at my right hand. Now when did he ever say that to an Israelite king? Like, sit right beside me. He said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he says that he swears that you're a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So now the man that whoever the Lord is talking to isn't just king, he's a priest king. All right, so back in Hebrews, the writer keeps referring back to that psalm saying, yeah, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It is confusing. And let me do one little other piece of review, and then I'm going to read the passage. You've got Abraham. He's, humanly speaking, he's the, the father of the people of God. All right, Abraham who has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, who's renamed, what? Israel, who has 12 sons, one of whom is named Levi. These sons become 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi was the tribe of the priesthood because God decided that that it would be. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and one of his many grandsons, Levi, is the tribe of the priesthood. And that's the way God designed it. That's the way the law read. And here's what the writer says. We had that priesthood. That was God's plan. And it's inferior. And there's a different priesthood that we need. And it's a completely different kind. So let's try to look at what he means by that. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. 
For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If there is every time that we need to pray for God to help us understand, it is this passage. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, it is your precious word, but it is, it is challenging to us this morning. So many names or categories that we're not familiar with, things that seem foreign. And we pray that you would shed light so that we can understand just the basic content. But then we pray that all these roads would lead to your son, Jesus, and we would see him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a freshman at Mississippi State, there was a guy that lived down the hall from me in the dorm, and one day he stopped me in the hallway and he said, Hey, aren't you Presbyterian? That's always a little bit dangerous that, that the conversation would start that way. But he said, Aren't you Presbyterian? I said, Yeah, I'm Presbyterian. He said, Okay, let me ask you something because I just found out about this. So when, when you guys have like church or, or, or a service, you, you don't invite people up front to become Christians. And I said, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's at least the ones I've been in, there, there's usually not an invitation to walk up front and like become a Christian. And he got this kind of like scrunched look on his face. And he said, well, then how are you saved? And I can't remember what I said, but I, 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 it struck me that he was coming out of a tradition where that was like just absolutely cooked into how things were done. And that comes out of 1800s America, what you'd call revivalism. And uh, it's not a wrong thing to do, but just he, he, what he grew up with is if you're listening to somebody tell the good news about Jesus and you want to profess belief, you walk up front and you sit with somebody or stand with somebody and you pray a prayer and you, and you profess belief. But I think the urgency of his question was, so like, how do you know 
you got saved if you don't do something like that? And really, isn't that always the question? I mean, that really is a big, huge question. How do you know that you're right with God? How do you know that you're saved? So much of what we're looking at is, is looking back at the Old Testament. And the way a devout Israelite would have expressed this may not have been, how do you know that you're saved? Now, you, that language is, is in the Old Testament. But what a devout Israelite who really knew the law, had been around the tabernacle or the temple, what, what he or she might say is, how do you know that you've been atoned? Atoned. Uh, the word atonement is one of those words that you can actually know the definition just by breaking down the word. It's at one Is to know that I am right with God, that, that I'm one with Him, and He's one with me, that we're not at odds with each other, that, and there's just all kinds of ways we could say this. We're reconciled. We're connected. We love one another. We are family. I'm, I'm clean. I'm accepted. I'm atoned for. And if you, don't, if you don't get what I'm about to say, this passage is just not going to make much sense to you. Humanly speaking, the front line when it came to atonement is the priesthood. And I hope it's not corny to say it this way. They're like the first responders when it comes to your atonement, humanly speaking. And now let's, go, let's zoom the camera out. Why is Hebrews written? Again, just review, reminder. Why is Hebrews written? The writer is writing a group of people who've been exposed to the good news of Jesus. And they've initially professed belief. They've initially said, yeah, we believe in Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. But they are seriously considering reverting back to Judaism. Not a different God. Not multiple gods. Not atheism. Going back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob via Judaism. And what is the writer saying? If you do that, what you'll be doing is you'll be going back to the old order of the priesthood as the means of atonement. And that order is now inferior. And he's not going to say that was something that we made up. God, no, God created it. But that order cannot do for you what you and I need. And there is now a different priesthood that all of us need. And he unpacks that. So let's look at that in terms of the old priesthood and then the different priesthood. Okay, the old priesthood and then the different priesthood. The old priesthood. Now, I don't normally do this. I, I, um, I had a pastor when I was in St. Louis, and he was brilliant at preaching sermons where all the points started with the same letter. I'm not good at that, alliterating, but I, I've got one this time. So three L's. I want you to think about these two different kinds of priesthood. Here, here's, here's the L's. Levi. I'm talking about, we've already said, Abraham's great-grandson, Levi. He's the head of the tribe from which the priests come. At the 8.30 service, I think I said, from whence the priests come. And I thought, why, why am I speaking like it's 1783? You know, from whence cometh the priest? Levi, the law, and limitations. I'm going to keep coming back to these three. Levi, law, 
limitations. All right, first off, the old priesthood. You got to be from the tribe of Levi. That was what God prescribed, not just from Abraham, from that tribe. Male descendant. The law. Uh, the way the Levites did what they did, the way the high priest did what he did, the things they were responsible for, is from the law of God. It's rooted in the law of Moses. L- look at verse 5 of the passage. It says, Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So besides the fact that they did sacrifices, they also received the tithes because the law said that was their job. Look in verse uh, 12. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well because the priesthood is formulated by the law. What else? And this is a big one, this third one, is limitations. The old order of the priesthood was very much affected by the limitations of the priests themselves. And the writer's going to highlight two big ones. The first one is death. That, that all these priests die. And the second one is that they're sinners too while they're living. And so not only do they need to do something about your sin, but they're sinners who have to do something about their sin. Now look at what the writer says, right? Death and sin. Uh, Look in verse 23 first, lower, uh, lower in the passage. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And priests weren't like pastors. There, there were a lot more of them. So maybe you didn't even know the priest, but maybe you did. Maybe when you brought a bull up to the entrance of the tabernacle, or you brought a, a lamb to the temple, uh, maybe if you came regularly enough, you dealt with someone over and over and over, maybe he heard you audibly confess sins. But then he died. Because he's mortal, like us. Look at what he says in verse 27. He refers to those high priests, he means the old, the old ones, who offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Now again, what is the writer trying to drive home? Everything that I just said was according to the Word of God. But it's inferior. Now, I was trying to think of something that, that you like on, initially might charm you or seem compelling that's actually inferior. And I was thinking about, like, uh, Dana loves to watch period pieces on British TV. Loves it. Loves it, loves it, loves it. And you know, when you're watching one of these things that's set in the 1700s or the 1800s, and it's charming, and it's beautiful, and people know how to act, and they know how to talk, and there's incredible decorum. And you know, they're not getting in a car, they're getting in a carriage, or maybe they're getting on some tasteful old train. And maybe for a second you thought, man, I wish travel were still like that. No, you don't. 
No, you don't. I thought about this recently. I mentioned that about a month ago, I flew up to New England, got to visit some of our church planners up there, and I had to go through Atlanta. And so I, I, I was sitting at this spot in Atlanta. I finally found the best tomato soup in the Atlanta airport. And it's a re- in a really great spot, and I'm not going to tell you where it is because I don't want it to get crowded. But I was sitting, eating my tomato soup. I'm sitting next to a charging station. My phone is charging when I'm waiting on my connection. And I'm texting Dana. Uh, First flight went well. Waiting on my connection. All is well. Heart emoji. Send. Mmm, tomato soup. So I'm just sitting there waiting. You know, and like I'm in Boston by late morning. This kills the old way of travel. If the old way of travel is like horse and buggy on an unpaved road for four days. It's just superior. The writer is saying to people that, you know, in this, in this sermon letter is what we're calling it. It's a sermon letter. You know, call him beloved. He's saying, friends, beloved, I'm not saying you don't need a priest. I'm not saying that we don't need atonement. But I'm saying, please don't opt for what is inferior when the superior is offered to you. And, you know, I was thinking about this part about, hey, priests die and priests are sinners. And I thought, well, you know what the comeback could be? The comeback could be, well, we're in the new covenant era and pastors die. And pastors are sinners. So how has anything changed? You know what has changed? I will die and I am a sinner. But you'll never hear me say that, humanly speaking, I'm the front line of your atonement. I hope. I hope you'll never hear me say that. I'm a first responder for the atoning blood that you need. I want to tell you how you can find atonement, but I don't handle the sacrifice that we need. The writer is saying the old order is not enough, even though God prescribed it. So what's the different priesthood? What do we need? Now, said the writer keeps referring back to this psalm, Psalm 110, where David says, Yahweh, Lord, all caps, the Lord said to my Lord, someone that's David's Lord, sit at my right hand, your enemies will be a footstool for your feet. This is king language, coronation language. But he also says, I swear to you that you are a priest forever. So there's this mysterious figure was very mysterious. Jewish thought, rabbinic thought. Was it the Messiah? Was it not? Who is this priest king that David is talking about? And you get to the New Testament and Jesus quotes it. And Paul quotes it. And Peter quotes it. And the book of Acts quotes it. And Hebrews keeps quoting it. That this became a go-to passage to say there's a priest king who's not in the old order, and he's the priest that we need. Now go back to the three L's. Levi, law, what's the other one? Limitations. Look look at the contrast. First off, Levi, and then look at verse 3. He, now that's Melchizedek, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Meaning, 
whether Melchizedek, the man, actually had a mom or dad or a family line, that's not the issue. In Genesis, he just kind of walks into the picture out of thin air. And Genesis is full of genealogies, but none for Melchizedek. And the writer is saying, there's another priest who's like that. That his priesthood has nothing to do with his direct descent back to Levi. There's no genealogy. What about the law? And this is interesting. Look at what it says in verse, uh, verse 20. About halfway through verse 20. It says, Those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. In other words, if you were a priest from the tribe of Levi, God didn't have to promise anything to make that happen. There's no oath or swearing. You just showed up and you were a male descendant of Levi and you were slotted into your, to your slot. The writer says, no, not this priest. It's not from descent. It's from God the Father swearing to him, you're a priest. A Melchizedek-like priest. God hasn't said this to anyone else. But then look at the limitations. You know, the limitations of the old order. They're sinners and they die. Look in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were, were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, meaning he's always there, always acting at priest, right beside God forever. I've noticed that in reading biographies of great leaders, a lot of great leaders, the way they did life was they expected the people around them to be able to respond anytime. I just heard an interview with Doris Kearns Goodwin. She wrote a famous book about Lincoln called Team of Rivals. And she actually worked for Lyndon B. Johnson right after she graduated from Harvard. And she said he expected response anytime. He might call you at 2 o'clock to, like, dictate something to you. She said that sometimes, I mean, he's just a workaholic. Sometimes President Johnson would invite the staff over to a pool party, and they would think, oh, pool party, a break. And he actually had these little platforms floating in the pool with telephones on them and notepads. I don't know how they did that with, you know, tethered phones, but somehow they set up something where if he had a brainstorm and needed to, like, get you to write something down or take a call or make a call, you could do it in the pool. Always be available. And I I thought about that thinking about from the perspective of a sinner... When do you need a priest? Anytime. Sometimes I sin from nine to five, but sometimes I sin at 11 at night or in the middle of the night or before anybody's up or in secret or when no one's around or maybe especially when no one's around. We need a priest who is available always, forever. 
And the writer is saying, see, that's why it's a big deal that he doesn't die. He's always seated at the Father's right hand with this indestructible life and perfect life. There's no sin that this priest has to overcome to help you. He can just help you forever because he brings zero sin to the picture. Look in verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, and listen to this description, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, I've I've thought and I've thought and I've thought about how, how to drive home, why is it such a big deal that we have a perfect priest always that we need? Because we talk about sin all the time. Let's think about it this way, and we'll start coming in for a landing. Do you have a secret? And when I say a secret, I mean, is there something about your life, your past, of which you are extremely ashamed and you want either no one to know about it or as few people as possible to know about it because because it was just so bad. And you feel so dirty about it. Like, have you ever done something where all you have to do is remember it and you physically wince? Like, maybe it hurts so bad when you remember it, you curse because it's so painful. Or you regret it so deeply and you just wish so bad you could go back in time and redo it or undo it, but you can't. And you have to live with that regret. Or it could be a secret of something done to you which has made you feel like damaged goods or tainted or like you'll forever be behind the eight ball and you can't catch up. I want you to think about that thing and then listen to what the writer says in verse 25. He says, consequently, and that's really a great word because he's saying, okay, I've just thrown the kitchen sink at you about Melchizedek and Levi and Aaron and priests. What's the point? Verse 25, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Jesus didn't just come to forgive your sins, although that's huge. But what what I'm trying to guard us against, friends, is that we don't just think, whew, Jesus came and he took care of that stuff that I did in my late teens and early 20s and all is well. The phrase that keeps coming up in Hebrews, it comes up as soon as the writer starts talking about Jesus being a priest, chapter 4. And he keeps saying it at the end of when he talks about Jesus as priest. Chapter 10, he says it twice in this passage, is that the stuff, if I may put it that way, the stuff 
is that you and I would draw near to God and be close to Him. And we cannot draw near to Him on our own terms because He is holy, holy, holy. But we have a priest who's so perfect, so indestructible, who did it so impeccably right, and it's so finished that in Him you can draw near to God as a sinner boldly, boldly, and be near Him. And know that you are cleansed. If Jesus saves you to the uttermost, you are saved to the uttermost. And let me end with this. I, I've shared this before, but I just, I just keep thinking about it because it has such a scent of real life about it. I'll never forget in our community group when two older members chimed in. The question that was asked was, what are things that make you afraid about the future? There's a lot of us younger adults in there, and we're talking about this or that kind of temporal things. And these two older members said, dementia. You know, we're getting older. We're watching what's happening to our peers, losing our faculties. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what will become of me if my mind physiologically changes to such a degree that I do things that I would never want to do? I treat people around me in a way I would never want to treat people in my right mind. I say things that are crazy that I would never want to say. Maybe say things that are blasphemous that don't reflect what I really believe. You know what? If you trust in this high priest, if he is your Savior, you are saved to the uttermost, even in your frail, frail final days. Because we're not our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Amen. Amen.